Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I may have made a small miscalculation um, when it came to getting a Christmas tree this year. Uh, well, oh, I'm sorry. When you go to a Christmas tree lot and you go directly to the nice person working there with the stick and you say, where are your big trees? Right. Um, yeah. He pointed me to the big trees. And being the enthusiastic Christmas guy that I am. Yes, you're a uh, very zealous mm. holidayer. And the ones we looked at, the biggest ones were still wrapped mm-hmm. in that stuff that they wrap it in that web netting kind of stuff so you can't really see the tree Mm -hmm. and i i just pointed to the tallest one and i said i want that one Mm -hmm. um it ended up being 11 feet tall it's you're like um you're like that girl from uh willy wonka and the chocolate factory where you're like i want the biggest one (laughs) and it is problematic yeah um it's the biggest tree we've ever had and I'm excited about it, or at least I was until we <laughs> unwrapped it. You know that scene in Christmas Vacation where Clark Griswold opens the tree and it busts the windows mm. out because it's so large? There were real concerns. There, there were some serious concerns about that. It is obscenely large. It's concerning how large it is. I do not know how we're going to get it out of the house. Chainsaw. Yeah. I'm going to have to chainsaw it. I still love the fact that we have a huge tree. We've got a a big ceiling, like a 17-foot ceiling. So I love the fact that we've got this huge, huge, huge tree. Um, I started to become concerned after we had to set up scaffolding to decorate it. I would love it if we actually had scaffolding because I would feel less like I'm going to die <laughs> in decorating your Christmas tree. Well, we'll post some pictures um, <sighs> of this beautiful tree. It's insane because I am I'm a I'm a, a enthusiastic uh, holidayer as yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, but I, it's just you make me seem 
like I am a humbug because I'm I'm like, can we have a reasonable size tree? And you're like, oh, but mom, <laughs> it's it's true. <laughs> Ridiculous. It's the life we live, sweetheart. Yep. 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 Anyway, look for pictures coming soon. In the meantime, you go first. Oh, I do. Wonderful. Okay, I'm very excited about this. Horace Dever Cole was an Irishman born in Cork County in 1881, which is a palindrome, and I love it. I know how you love the palindromes. He was the son of a British Army officer, and his mom was a niece and heiress of Sir Stephen and Lady Dever. Horace's paternal grandfather had made his fortune dealing in quinine, while his mother's family claimed kinship with the de Vere Earls of Oxford and the right to the position of Lord Great Chamberlain of England. They were a fancy-pants family. I guess the heck. Cole attended the prestigious Eton College and eventually Cambridge, but he didn't end up graduating from Cambridge. Uh, He served in the Army during the Second Boer War, during which he was wounded. So as Cole came from a very wealthy aristocratic family, and he was intelligent and worldly, uh, but he didn't have a lot of things to fill his time with, uh, like issues of survival. He didn't have to, you know, go to work and earn his bacon or whatever. Um, So it led to some more merry endeavors. Merry endeavors, you say? This jaunty nobleman had to fill his time? Indeed, he did. In early 1905, according to the St. James Gazette, the mayor of Cambridge received a telegram reading, The Sultan of Zanzibar will arrive today at Cambridge at 427 for a short visit. Could you arrange to show him buildings of interest and send a carriage? Henry Lucas, Lord Cecil London. The Cambridge town clerk uh, met their train at the station, and the crew was escorted uh, with full pomp and circumstance, where the mayor gave them a formal reception, and they were fed, and it was a whole thing. Now, if they had elected to give them half pomp and circumstance, Mm -hmm. how would that be measured? Not sure. Now, as you might have guessed... This was, in fact, not the Sultan of Zanzibar and his crew. It was Horace de Vercole and his friend, Adrian Stephen, uh, and some of their buddies. Uh, they were attending their second year at Trinity College and learned that the Sultan of Zanzibar was touring England. So they themselves decided to take part in some of this um, pomp, if you will. They dressed up in Oriental garb, quote unquote. Uh-huh. And uh, they wore some heavy makeup. They were given a tour of the university by the mayor and the town clerk. There was a retired missionary there who tried to speak to the quote-unquote sultan in his native language. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, but Cole, posing as the uh, translator, informed the woman that uh, the the sultan would not be permitted to address a woman unless she (laughs) were to join his harem. (laughs) So... Is this performance art or was it just fraternity hijinks? This is hardcore pranking. And this is something that Cole filled his life with. I love this man. What was the date again? This was in 1905. Okay. That was the golden age of pranking. Indeed. The group returned to the train station. This was uh, to 
appear as though they were making their way back to London. But uh, the the pranksters actually snuck out the side exit and <laughs> headed back to town. The hoax was revealed later when it was discovered that the real Sultan had been in London the whole time, that he hadn't made his way to Cambridge so at all. they went back to the train station. Mm-hmm. Adieu, uh, goodbye. And, uh, they, yeah, and they got on the train to London, but then just went... Scoodle-doot. Got out the other side. Yeah. I love this. It was a very... And when I picture it, it feels very like Beatles music video-ish. Well, it's you Hard know. Day's Night it, <laughs> is what it is. Right? So uh, the turn of the century was an interesting time for England. Uh, the working man was gaining more power. Uh, aristocracy, though still in control for the most part, was starting to lose the status that it once held. And those within the lower classes were starting to question if the current setup of those who were considered uh, noble, wielding that kind of like anointed control, if the whole situation wasn't a little silly. And so... Pranking was a mock. There was a, a, some hardcore pranking. And it wasn't just like a lighthearted thing. It was intentionally done to kind of rub the noses of the <laughs> higher ups or the mucky mucks uh, in the fact that they weren't special, that they were easily fooled, that they were dum-dums. They were being, they were tweaking them is what they were doing. They were just tweaking them. They were giving them a little, a little, a little goose, meh. a little meh. Like that. Yeah. In the early 20th century, Britain's naval fleet was seen as one of the foundations of its empire and a reflection of the country's power and wealth. The HMS Dreadnought was the first of the Britain's Dreadnought class of battleship. It entered into Royal Navy service in 1906, and it was the most technologically advanced ship that had been built. It was better armed. It was faster and stronger than any other vessel afloat. It was a really big deal. And in a talk given in 1940, Virginia Woolf described how, in 1910, young naval officers enjoyed playing practical jokes on each other. So, Cole had a friend who was on the Hawk, and he came to Cole and said, you're a great hand at hoaxing people. Couldn't you do something to pull the leg of the dreadnought? They want taking down a bit. Uh-huh. We need to bring this back. <laughs> we need to make this another craze. <laughs> It's been 100 years plus, but it's long overdue. So this involved Cole and five friends, which included Adrian Stephen, the guy from the, the previous Zanzibar prank, Virginia Stephen, his sister, who we know better as Virginia Woolf, oh. Guy Ridley, Anthony Buxton, and artist Duncan Grant. They disguised themselves once again by way of theatrical costumer Willie Clarkson. Again, they did the face makeup, they wore turbans, and they were attempting to appear to be members of the Abyssinian royal family. So, this group, uh-huh, the Emperor, was invited on board the Dreadnought. The crew was very excited to show off this very fancy ship to these royal people. Of course. It was a dreadnought holiday. And of course... <laughs> they didn't like cricket. No. 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 Stephen, who had uh, at one point apparently learned Swahili but had forgotten it, 
carried off the translator's duties by kind of garbling Greek mixed with Latin passages from Homer and Virgil. Mm-hmm. And um, they, while there, handed out military honors to the crew. Oh. Obviously, they were fake military honors, uh-huh. uh, but they involved, you know, some medals wow. and some, some really nice um, props. Props, yeah. Mm. The party did decline lunch on the ground that the religious beliefs of the Abyssinians made it impossible for the royal family to be fed unless the food had been prepared in a very special way. Okay. But in fact, it was because they were concerned that their beards would come off (laughs) while dining. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Some weeks later, the story broke in the Daily Mirror, along with a photo of the emperor and his party with the crew of the Dreadnought. Uh, Apparently, the Mirror reporter got the idea that the Abyssinians, or the fake Abyssinians, had used the phrase, bunga bunga, when delighted (laughs) with what they were seeing. Now, after this account appeared, the words bonga bonga turned up all over the city. It was uh, included in dance hall songs. Uh, Boys would use them to taunt naval officers on the streets. Bonga bonga. It was a rallying cry for the working class to give up to the upper class. I cannot express to you in the English language how much I love this. So I have to resort to Greek Swahili. Well, you could just say bunga bunga. Bunga bunga. <laughs> According to Virginia Woolf, when the real emperor of Abyssinia arrived in London weeks later, wherever he went, the street boys ran after him calling bunga bunga. <laughs> and when the emperor asked if he could look at the British fleet, the admiral replied that he regretted to inform his majesty it would be quite impossible. I see. That was probably Cole's best known and most widely revered, let's call it, work. Because it it nearly created an international incident. (laughs) According to legend, Cole once hosted a party at which the guests discovered during the course of mingling that they all had the word bottom in their surnames. (laughs) That is so British. Winter bottoms mingled with long bottoms. Mm Mm-hmm. So you can see that not not all, his pranks varied in their size and scope. The Time Life Library of Curious and Unusual Facts reports that Cole often targeted his peers, playing on the innate good manners of the well-bred English gent. So in some instances, he would pose as a surveyor on the street, and he would politely ask a passing fellow, to hold one end of a string for a moment. <laughs> then he would disappear around a corner mm-hmm. and find another very polite young man. Very proper. Who would agree to hold the other end of the string. Mm-hmm. Cole would then take off. Would he step back, though, and kind of meld into the existing scenery so that he could watch and see how long they stood there holding because the, i would i would have yeah no to me that you're like an arsonist who, yeah. who needs to watch the yeah, fire return to the crime um no it's not known uh or i don't know mm-hmm. um i i think that it was just doing it that was enough <laughs> but uh who knows either way eventually uh one of them would get angry and throw down his side of the string mm-hmm. and the prank would then end <laughs> 
<laughs> Unless the other one didn't realize and was still standing there. Mm, wow. In, in which case, it was your politeness that led to a huge waste of your time. On occasion, Cole would wander the streets with a cow's udder poking through the fly of his pants. <laughs> This is my kind of guy. Once someone would be uh, (laughs) thusly outraged by uh, this disgusting thing, he would apologize profusely. (laughs) Of course he would. Pull out scissors and cut it off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. In his later years, Cole's escapades principally aimed at deflating pompous figures of authority, and his targets included members of parliament. One mark was newly elected conservative member of parliament Oliver Locker Lampson, who he'd somehow convinced to race him on a London street to the nearest corner. (laughs) Before the 3-2-1 go... He slipped his pocket watch into the MP's pocket. Mid-race, Cole started yelling, Stop! Thief! (laughs) (laughs) Wow. The the baffled MP was caught. Locker Lamson was promptly arrested (laughs) when the watch was found in his suit pocket. After savoring the moment, Cole explained that it was all a joke and both men were to go on their way. Unfortunately, Cole then began waving his stick in a dangerous manner as though conducting an imaginary band. And both men were arrested and taken into custody. This is glorious. No charge was brought against Locker Lampson, but Cole was found guilty of breach of peace and fined five pounds. That's money well spent. Indeed. It was said, and this is because he had the money that he had, he Mm. could do things like this. He once bought every seat in the stalls at what he deemed a pretentious play and handed out the tickets to many acquaintances. The acquaintances, though, were very strategically selected, and they got the seats that they were supposed to get. So as the performance started, the lights went up. Those in the upper galleries were shocked to find that the bald heads of men spelled out shit in the audience. (laughs) Oh, my God. Now, there is an alternate version of that story that said that it was painted on bald heads. But that would mean that the people needed to be involved in it. And I don't think that he could get that many people. Anyway, so this is the version that, that I choose to buy. In 1918, Cole fell in love with an heiress named Denise Lynch, and she was the ward of the Irish Chancery, and that prevented her from marrying until the age of 21. Eventually, she was released from the wardship, and they got married in 1918, but their marriage did fail in 1928, and Cole went into voluntary exile in France. Now, Part of the reason that the marriage failed and part of the reason that he was exiled was because he lost all of his money in Canadian land speculation. I don't know the details about that. It doesn't sound funny. Um, But he was uh, apparently not used to being poor. And so he uh, decided that he would go to move to France, where his jokes were not considered funny, by the way. Mm, Those wacky Brits, they're not appreciated everywhere. They are here. Of of course course. they are. Of Of course. course. Yes. We love you. (laughs) 
1931, he married a former waitress, and her name was Mabel Winfred Mary Wright, who then gave birth to a son who was actually not Cole's son, but his friend August John's son. Wow. She and really she got the last laugh there. That yeah, that yeah. didn't work out so well. It was apparently very embarrassing. And because of the Canadian land speculation issues and these multiple wives, one of which who was uh, fooling around with another man, um, Cole wasn't having a great time. Uh, he ended up dying of a heart attack, penniless, in France, and was buried at West Woodhay. And that is a terrible way to end this yeah, story. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great, though, that if he really didn't die and he faked his own death? And he's he's here now! And Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Horace Dever Cole. Uh, thanks for joining us today. I know uh, you came a long way. Much farther than you could ever imagine. <laughs> So anyway, that is the uh, great prankster, Horace Dever Cole. Some of those examples that you gave remind me of stuff that I pulled during my wacky morning show years. Oh? Wacky radio DJ morning show years. Wacky waving inflatable flailing arm tube man years? Yep. I did uh, a morning radio show uh, in Tampa. This was a number of years ago. This is when uh, Regis and Kathy Lee were still doing the morning show on ABC. Rest in peace, Regis. Yeah. They were doing a live broadcast uh, on the waterfront, and they needed people in the audience. So they contacted our radio station uh, to give away tickets. Got it. It was our job to fill the seats mm -hmm. at the live show. At the same time, there was a Shriners convention at the hotel next door. Sure. And we went over it. I guess they'd been partying all night. Mm -hmm. And so, there were, <laughs> long story short, when they went live with Regis and, and Kathy Lee, all you could see were like fezzes in the audience. Like a sea of fezzes. A sea of fezzes. Pretty much their audience was full of drunken Shriners. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We loved it. It was so much fun. But I think one of my greatest moments was, you know what you know what power bars are? Yes. They were like the protein bars. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. I prefer Luna bars, but whatever. Okay. Sponsor well, us Luna. Yeah. We had, uh, I had some of those chocolate power bars and I was just molding it like clay. I crafted this dog poop out of a power bar <laughs> and I, and I put it on the, um, on the floor in front of... Um, Why is it when you get pranky, you get very high-pitched? <laughs> because I'm trying, I'm, try, <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh. And so anyway, one of the kids came home. I said, yeah, the dog made a mess. You need to clean that up. And uh, they were like, oh, I can't believe you're making me do this. And I said, fine, I'll do it. And I reached down and I picked it up and took a big bite out of it and walked out of the room. Mm-hmm. So traumatizing children, that's really what it's all about right. for me. I mean, your pranks include Shriners and scarring your children. And defenseless children, yeah, yes. I yeah. love it. Mm -hmm. So my work here's done. Obviously. We were going to call this segment Kevin, but it didn't do well in focus groups. So now we call it That Thing in the Middle. Today's Thing in the Middle... From Ranker, a list of five incredibly cute children who grew up to be celebrities. I think I sent you this link. Did you get the link? Yeah, I got the link. Okay. Um, so uh, why don't you go ahead and start? <clears throat> Number five, Drew Barrymore. Oh, man, yeah. she's cute. Yeah, she's cute. 
This isn't translating well. <laughs> this was your idea of pranking the freaks. I can't Read a list of names and go, yeah, that Russell Crowe. He's cute. He was a cute baby. That Russell Crowe. I really thought we'd get further into this before you picked up on what I was doing. I'm sorry. It's all right. <laughs> Let's do something else. Okay. When Louis Chevrolet set up his motor company, the Chevrolet Motor Company, he was just a mechanic. However, by the end of his life, he was still a mechanic and died bankrupt. His company is currently worth $11.3 billion. More fun than a Civil War reenactment without the smell of fried chicken, sweaty wool, and sunscreen. This is The Box of Oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our Aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the Aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month 
free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for The Box of Oddities is provided in part by listeners like you on Patreon. You can support us too. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Got this email at curator at theboxofoddities.com. It came from Jessa. Hey guys, just listened to your recent episode about BIID, where people have this weird feeling that their limbs don't actually belong to them. I can't say that I have this exact disorder, but I can say that any time the topic of phantom limbs come up, my mind immediately goes to my non-existent sixth and twelfth toes. Yes, Interesting. For some reason, my brain seems to think I have one extra toe after my real pinky toes, and I have no idea why. I will sometimes clean between each toe on my foot while in the shower and get kind of frustrated that I can't enjoy how nice it would feel if I could also clean between my fifth and sixth toe. Oh my gosh! I've even clipped my foot on the coffee table, like one does, and cried out in pain only to realize that I'd only hit my invisible toe and I was completely fine. I haven't really talked about this with anyone because it doesn't really dictate my life. Sure. And I don't really think there are any surgeries that I could pursue anyway. No. It's just a weird thing I thought you'd be interested to hear about. I am interested to hear about it. That is amazing and weird, and I and, but like in a nice way. I love the podcast and how you two can make me ugly laugh <laughs> even when there are people watching. Keep it weird. Thanks, Jessa. And uh, be careful. Don't stub your... That's incredible. That That's something? incredible. It's amazing. Well, last episode I did uh, a segment on uh, Jonestown, the Jonestown massacre. Yes, that was heavy let's, shit. Let's not talk about that again. No, no. And so I thought I'd try to lighten it up a little bit. Are we going to talk uh, about time? abortion? No, no. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about um, really extreme uh, execution techniques. Oh, okay, okay. So this ought to brighten things up. Thank you. This comes from Ranker. Dutch conspirators were tortured. Now, you've probably heard about this one with rats and hot coals. Yes. Uh, during the 80 Years War, Northern Holland Governor Dietrich Sonoy arrested eight men and he charged them with uh, conspiracy to burn down several small villages in Holland. That was the charge. We think you might burn some villages down. Sure. So he, uh, he condemns them. And one of the victims, Nanning Kopazun, was put on the rack. He was strapped to the rack. Mm -hmm. uh, they placed live rats on his stomach. And then over the top of the rats, they placed a ceramic vessel. Then he put hot coals on that vessel. And with nowhere else to run from the heat, the rats burrowed into the guy's body. So Noy then took all the hot coals and put them into the guy's open wounds. 
This well, that would at least cauterize it. I, I so guess, yeah. Keep you from getting infected, I guess. Now, this is <laughs> this is something that we've all heard about mm. or maybe even seen in movies. But uh, this is the only case where it is actually documented to have taken place. Okay. Some of these other ways of execution were even more devious. Assyrian prisoners of war were often flayed. I'm going to real quick just say this this segment might not be for everyone. Because I know the last time we talked about this kind of thing and you discussed the golden eagle. Yes. Um, my friend Keegan was like uh, vomiting yeah, at work. Yeah. So um, that is another we're going to. Uh, yeah. Another method of extreme torture yeah. and execution that we had uh, mentioned once before. I'm not including that in this list. Of, I know. I'm just things, I'm just saying yes. if it's going to be like things. It is going to be like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are other techniques that we have not discussed. Just keep in mind, you might not like this. Flaying was most prevalent in the Assyrian army, in the Assyrian empire from about the 14th century BCE until 610 BCE. Uh, the Assyrians were known for uh, having military might. And in the 9th century, Assyria dominated northern Mesopotamia. After defeating their enemies in combat, Assyrians punished everyone who opposed them by destroying their cities and then flaying the nobility. Now, is flaying the same as filleting? It's skinning. Alive. Okay, so essentially. Sort of, kind of. You're not removing the bones, but yeah. King Ashurnazirpal recorded his victory over one city that uh, resisted his conquest. Quote, I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within a pile. Some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over my walls. So just the thing to brighten up your den. Welcome. Here are some skins. Now, Persian criminals were subjected to what they called the boats. The boats required the victim to be laid flat in a boat, like a flat boat. Mm -hmm. And then another boat with holes, which allowed the victim's head and hands and feet to protrude, was then laid over them. The executioner forced the victim to drink an abundance of a mixture that was made out of milk and honey. He would then cover the victim with uh, the mixture of milk and honey. The victim was left in the boats and nature took its course. With nowhere else to go, the victim was forced to excrete where he lay. Flies would swarm the victim and they were left until they were completely devoured mm. by maggots. That's fun. Or eventually the boat would fill up and you'd drown in your own feces. One or the other. That sounds terrible. In the 5th century BCE, there is a uh, documented case of this taking place where the, the condemned took 17 days to die. Oh, my gosh. I mean, are they continually feeding you honey and milk? I mean, do they come back out to feed you no. more? Because you can't live 17 days. No. They just stuff you full of it, cover you in it. And then let the flies and the maggots. Uh, I don't see how you could live 17 days that way. Without food or water? I don't know. What's the rule of three, right? Three days without water, three weeks without three. What is it? I think it's three days without Netflix. <laughs> three. I don't know. I'd have to check. Vestal virgins. They were burned alive if they broke their oath. Vestal virgins were high priestesses to... Vesta, the goddess of home and hearth. 
the Vestal Virgins were expected to make a lifetime commitment, an oath to the role and the rules that came along with it. The Vestals had to, rem- had, they had to uh, abstain from any sex for their entire lives. Boo. Boo, indeed. <laughs> they were expected to remain a symbol of purity for as long as they were alive, both pure and unharmed to represent their city. Now, if a Vestal Virgin were to get it on, let's say, break her oath, do the Humpty, she was executed as a sacrifice. The Humpty dance is your chance to get executed. Oh, oh, do Play it, me, baby. baby. <laughs> so the thing was, that because they were a, a symbol of uh, purity and they had a vow of celibacy, they still perceived a, a fallen Vestal Virgin as former purity, but now tainted. And so nobody wanted to be responsible for killing them oh. because it would taint them. Like, I mean, do you have to, though? Doesn't that seem like maybe something you could just skip? Apparently, they felt very strongly about this, although nobody wanted to be personally responsible. So what they would do is just bury them alive and let nature take its course. They would parade the Vestal around the city until she was brought to a small chamber. She was given a lamp and a small amount of food and was walled up and left to die. I feel like that's um, like the plan that a teenager would come up with. Like, well, I don't want to kill her. Well, I don't want to kill her. Well, let's just put her in this small box and then she'll just die and it (laughs) won't really be our fault. (laughs) Right. But is it the person who helped her into the box's fault or is it the person who locked the box? We're splitting hairs at this point. So in ancient Rome, they had a bunch of different punishments for for the same crime, like murder. There were different degrees of murder, kind of like we have now, first degree, second degree, third degree manslaughter. So there's like, uh, I'm going to get you murder. And then there's like, oh, whoopsie murder. Right. But whether it was I'm going to get you murder or whoopsie murder, if you murdered your parents, that was the most severe form. Patricide. Patricide. Matricide. Parasides. That sounds like something that would get into you through poop. Or after you've been covered in milk and honey and left in the sun for days. <laughs> so if you killed one of your own parents, there was a crueler form of punishment than other types of homicide in ancient Rome. When a person was convicted of the crime, they were condemned to pina colae. Ooh, that sounds delicious. If you like pina colae and getting flayed to the bone... Uh, it's a form of capital punishment requiring that required the condemned be whipped before. This is weird. This gets weird. You whip them. Then you put a wolfskin bag over their head and you force them to wear wooden clogs. And then you're tied inside an ox leather sack with a dog, a rooster, a viper and a monkey and thrown in the river. That's terrible. Those animals didn't ask I for knew that. It. I knew that's what you were going to... Yeah, the dog and the well, rooster, the viper and the monkey. Come on. Like, and also, where are you getting all these animals? Like, where are you getting these monkeys from? They had monkeys in Rome. They brought all kinds of exotic animals into Rome. Because they would murder them in the Colosseum. It's no wonder we have a problem with invasive species all over the world. Here in the United States of America, political enemies especially in the early days of the revolution, were tarred and feathered. What you might not know... Though, really, they they didn't need to do any of that stuff because for some reason, we were all like, 
I'll meet you tomorrow morning and you can shoot at me. Like, what <laughs> kind of plan is that? I'm sorry. Tarred and feathered. Yes. Right, right. It, it sprung up during the Revolutionary War. Tarring and feathering was primarily enacted or provoked by revolutionary organizations. For example, the Sons of Liberty. It eventually became a form of mob justice rather than like a state-sanctioned form of punishment. It was more of a vigilante kind of thing. Got it. It was guerrilla justice. No, they put the gorillas in the bag and threw them in the river. Stop saying that. Tarring and feathering kind of took on a life of its own into the uh, 19th century and early 20th century as late as 1918. Oh, wow. A person was tarred and feathered. (laughs) I'm sorry. I just pictured like my dad would have said, I know I'm tarred. (laughs) Oh, Lordy. A notable case was it took place on the night of the 19th of August in 1918 in Luverne, Minnesota, when a German-American farmer, John Mainz, was kidnapped, whipped, tarred and feathered, and then ordered out of the state with a threat of death. He was accused of being a German sympathizer. This was in the later years of uh, of the First World War. And they assumed he was a German sympathizer because, well, one, he was German. Mm -hmm. And number two, he refused to participate in a war bond drive. Ah. So there you go. Tarred and feathered. Now, being tarred and feathered, I'm sure, is very uncomfortable and and. And not good for you, but how how would it exactly take your life? It wouldn't take it wouldn't? your life. No, well, Even I mean, if, if it you got were, into you, like your butthole and stuff. Imagine if the tar was hot enough and mm. it was able to penetrate one's butthole, mm. get it right up in the pitch ditch. If you know what I mean. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It was more of a form of punishment, as, okay. as rather than um, execution. Although, if you just dumped somebody in boiling tar. Then they would probably die. Well, anything boiling, probably. Probably, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And tar's expensive, so you could just water. And then what would you feather after that? It wouldn't really be a tarring and feathering. It would just be a... I I would say breadcrumbs. Dip them in like an egg wash. (laughs) And then roll them in breadcrumbs. Uh, But do you season your breadcrumbs? That's the question. Um, No, we've gotten way off track. Way off track. Sorry about that. I'm done. I'm done. That's it. Well, that was upsetting. I'm sorry. Thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate your your research and time that went into that gross thing that you just said. (laughs) My job here is done. (laughs) We are really getting excited about, uh, well, this year being over pretty soon. And hoping that next year is going to be a better year. We're making some plans to get back out on the road, probably, it won't be the first couple of quarters. It'll be second or third or fourth quarter of next year. But in the process of planning for this, you can help us by supporting us on Patreon. When you do that, it gives us the um, resources in order to book and plan. And it's not cheap. I mean, going to San Francisco, (laughs) that show costs us (laughs) $80,000. That's not true. No, it's not true. We, we, did, we just about broke even we on just San about Francisco. San Francisco, yeah. <laughs> but that's because we ate a lot we while we were there, constantly. and we drank a lot. That's so, true. Yeah. I mean, we couldn't have expected to make money when we were <laughs> indulging the way we did. No. But it was neat. It and was neat. I wanted to try mm-hmm, all the stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was that grain bowl that I had. Oh, shit. It was that, like cherries and bulgur. It was so good. It was $140. <laughs> oh, good. San Francisco prices. <laughs> 
Um, anyway, so yeah. you can support us. Yes. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. Or theboxofoddities.com. That's the one that's our website. Yeah, that's what that is. Yeah. And oh. you, you can help us get the live shows back out on the road. Also, you can help us in making a donation. Our patrons have selected a charity for uh, 10% of our support to go to. Uh, big thanks to those who voted, and you can be a part of the selection process for next month uh, by supporting us. As 10% of all support money that we receive at Patreon goes to charity. Thanks a lot for hanging out with us, you guys. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.